The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. What is love? And what does love have to do with marriage? Well, of course, there are plenty of potential answers to that question in the world of popular culture. According to the rock singer Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield. And uh, perhaps many of us can relate to that perspective, especially those of us who have been married for a while. Just as no one has the power to bless and encourage you like your spouse, so to no one else has the power that your spouse has to provoke you, to exasperate you, and even to hurt you deeply. Love is not an easy pathway to tread. On the other hand, if you believe the singer Bette Midler, Love is a seed hiding beneath the bitter snows that when exposed to the sunshine in the spring will finally become a rose. As a gardener, I have to say I find that analogy horticulturally suspect. (laughs) The chances of someone planting a seed in the fall and getting a rose in the spring is about on par with finding Jack's magic beans and getting a cloud-rending beanstalk. In the real world, roses are grafted onto existing stems and bought from nurseries, not grown from seed. But if we may deconstruct Miss Midler for a moment, maybe that's precisely the point of the song. That love is beautiful and desirable, but in the end, ultimately elusive. As legendary and as hard to find in this broken world as leprechauns, unicorns, and yes, roses grown from seed. Some of you can probably relate to that perspective on love as well. Maybe you find it emotionally difficult to attend weddings, because when you watch the bride and groom's love for each other, you find it hard to imagine that something like that could ever happen for you. Another definition of love comes from Bruce Lee. Yes, that Bruce Lee, the master of martial arts, who said this, love is like a friendship caught on fire. In the beginning, a flame, very pretty, often hot and fierce, but still only light and flickering. As love grows older, our hearts mature, and our love becomes as coals, deep burning and unquenchable. Who knew, right? (laughs) Now, I don't know if Mr. Lee ever read the Bible, but it seems to me that friendship caught on fire is a pretty good summary of the love that is described in the Song of Songs. And yet there are aspects of the other definitions in the song as well. Fire is very pretty, but coals can burn you as well as warm you. The rose is one of the most beautiful of flowers, but roses have thorns as well as blooms. Battlefields can be places of memorable triumphs, but also scenes of bitter defeat and awful death. And so too, throughout the song, you have the most glorious descriptions of love that stands side by side with stern warnings against stirring up love too soon. And in Song of Songs 8, as we reach the poetic climax of the song, the glory and the pain of love are once again starkly portrayed side by side in a series of distinct but related images. Are love and marriage good things? Yes, but... 
The Bible clearly affirms the goodness of God's design for marriage, but at the same time, it also warns us of the challenges that marriage presents us with in a fallen world. It shows us a powerful, positive portrayal of what marriage can and should look like. The picture of one man and one woman bonded together permanently into a single unit. Two people who become one flesh forever. But which of us can live up to so overwhelmingly beautiful a picture? Which of our marriages actually bears more than the faintest resemblance to this glorious model? Is your own personal experience of love and marriage beautiful? For some of us, the answer is yes, although there would certainly have to be some qualifications. For many, though, the pursuit of love and marriage is very far from this beautiful, ideal picture. We are broken people living in a broken world. But the Scripture presents this positive picture of marriage as the primary metaphor for the relationship that Christ shares with His people. As a result, whether we are single or married or widowed or divorced, whether we have personally had positive or negative experiences of love and marriage, God's perfect design for marriage is a design that should captivate us all. If you're a Christian here today, you are part of Christ's bride. That is the ultimate good design that God has for marriage, a design that brings glorious hope to broken and forlorn sinners, a hope not just for human flourishing in this world, but for a glorious eternity that is yet to come. Our marriage to Christ is a beautiful reality with no negatives, with none of the reservations that inevitably cloud human interactions. And so our primary source this afternoon will be these two passages in the Song of Songs. Obviously, it's not the only place we could go to in Scripture if we wanted to talk about the Bible's teaching on marriage. We could start at Genesis 2. We could go straight to Ephesians 5 and Paul's teaching on the subject. Now, Proverbs also has much to say on the subject of marriage. But I think the Song of Songs is perhaps the fullest and most extended reflection on the beauty and goodness of God's design for marriage. So that's where we're spending our time this afternoon. Again, I'm assuming here, as I mentioned earlier, that Song of Songs speaks to our human desire for love and marriage. It's not merely intended to be an allegory of Christ and His church. Uh, and the first thing to notice about the song is that it delights in marriage and not merely sex. Uh, some uh, commentators seem fixated on sexual innuendos and references in the song. And maybe you've heard that the song is, is so scandalous you can't possibly read it uh, in front of your family, uh, which I think tells you more about the interpreters than it does uh, about the song. It's sort of like when you were in high school uh, and, uh, and it was common to, uh, after somebody had said something, to say, that's what the actress said to the bishop. And all of a sudden, this totally innocent thing that the other person has said suddenly sounds like it is totally full of innuendo. Uh, well, I think people have sometimes treated the song uh, like that. And, and I'm tempted to draw the conclusion that uh, Old Testament scholars as a class just have dirty minds. 
um, which, which, which actually has some, uh, some mileage to it, I think. I remember when uh, Ray Dillard and Trump Longman, my own Old Testament professors, visited us in England. Uh, they, they, uh, they had uh, stopped off at a pub to have lunch on the way there, uh, and uh, on the menu of the pub uh, that day uh, as the dessert was Spotted Dick. Uh, which in England is just a, it's just a, a sponge with currants in it, but they found that hysterically funny. Um, so maybe that's just what the problem is here. Um, but uh, it, this opening uh, poem, chapter 4, verse 8 uh, through 5, verse 1, stands at the very center of the book. It, it's, it, it, there are the same number of poetic lines before it and after it. It is right dead center in the book. Uh, and uh, here is where we see this relationship finally consummated, and this is where the man calls the woman his bride for the first time. The word occurs no fewer than six times in this poem and nowhere else in the book, emphatically connecting the sexual experience that's being described here in beautiful poetic terms with the legal status that must accompany it. As I said earlier, bride can hardly be a metaphor, because in what context would an unmarried couple use such a term as a metaphor in any culture, ancient or modern? Elsewhere in the Bible, this Hebrew word always indicates a new familial bond brought into existence through marriage. And here in the song, it marks a key turning point in the couple's relationship. Marriage creates the legal and relational context in which our sexuality belongs. It provides the setting in which it is right and appropriate for the locked garden to be unlocked, for the sealed fountain to be unsealed. And that unique, lifelong, committed aspect of the couple's love is confirmed by the unremitting imagery used in Song of Songs 8. Love, the song says, is not merely as strong as an ox or as powerful as a speeding locomotive. It is as strong as death. People who enter the fierce grip of death do not emerge again. And so too, having entered this equally powerful realm of love, the woman wants uh, it, it to grip them both forever. It, she wants their relationship to remain exclusive and unique, as unyielding and relentless in its single-minded jealousy as that parallel image of Sheol, of the grave. Death doesn't take bribes. You can't buy more time for life by distracting death's attention. The grave never loses its single-minded focus on swallowing people up. And so too, the poet says, is the woman's unrelenting jealousy. Now, we usually think of jealousy as a negative emotion, as a refusal to share something that ought to be shared. And so perhaps we get jealous if somebody is getting the attention that we think we deserve, or if another person acquires something that we really desire. As parents, we spend a lot of time and effort teaching our children not to be jealous, but to share. You need to let your little brother play with that toy. You need to rejoice when your little sister gets the present that you wish you had. Uh, I can still remember one Christmas when I was probably about nine years old. Uh, my great aunt had brought uh, uh, fuzzy toys for my sisters, and she brought, bought me a, a plastic uh, model a battleship to construct, you know, all the pieces of, 
which was actually a very thoughtful gift on her part, but I was having none of it. I wanted the toys my sisters had, and I vented my jealousy on everybody around me in no uncertain terms, which is why I still remember it to this day. So we think of jealousy as a negative thing, but some things in life, of course, are not meant to be shared. Uh, When our kids were small, they were adorable. Uh, You can ask Elise about that. Uh, But if you had come to Barb and myself, and if you'd asked, could I buy your kids, or even could I rent your kids for a year or two, we would have said no. Might have thought about it. We said no, though, right? Because we're jealous for our kids. We are conscious that God had given us a unique calling to raise them, and we would not share that privilege of parenting them with other people. Well, in the same way, there's an appropriate jealousy within marriage. You belong uniquely to that other person, and they belong uniquely to you. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be together for every second of every day and never speak to members of the opposite sex without your spouse's permission. We were never intended to meet all of the relational needs of our spouse, and it would be folly to try. But loving somebody in marriage means that you have a unique relationship with your spouse in which they hold your heart in their hands in a special way that no one else shares. No one else should know your struggles in the way that your spouse does. No one else should delight in your triumphs and share your joys in the way that they do. Some things were not meant to be shared. Love belongs in this permanent, exclusive relationship of marriage. But the couple's bond in the song is not merely a legal one. It is also an affectionate bond of companionship. She is not merely his bride she is his sister. Now, this is where the language of the poem does turn metaphorical, using a term of endearment that's well known in ancient Near Eastern love poetry. She's not literally his sister. That would have been freaky weird. What the word really indicates is a friendship in their marriage like that between a brother and a sister, which was the closest relationship between two members of the opposite sex that you could have in antiquity. It's a reminder that legal and sexual union were never intended to exist by themselves. When the man and woman in Genesis 2.24 became one flesh in that original marriage, it indicated much more than merely physical intimacy. It was a union of body and soul in which two people are united in every aspect of their lives. From then on, there were no longer two separate individuals, but one new body in which mutual care and companionship and respect and self-giving are the logical consequence, as Paul unpacks it in Ephesians 5. But while the relationship of the couple in the song is more than sexual, it is certainly not less than sexual. When Matthew Henry advised us to read the Song of Songs as if we didn't have bodies, he's asking us to ignore the obvious. The man in these poems passionately craves the woman as she does him. Her first words in the book do not express a longing to share an inductive Bible study with her husband-to-be. Rather, it is a quest for him to kiss her with the kisses of his mouth. And in the central poem, he returns the compliments. When she says in chapter 1, verse 2, your love is better than wine, the Hebrew word for love is better translated caresses. 
There's no question about what kind of love she has in view, sexual love. And so, too, in this poem in chapter 4, the bride joyfully responds to the man's words of praise and commitment by inviting him to come into her garden and enjoy its choice fruits. The locked garden, the sealed fountain of her body, is now going to be freely and eagerly open for him to enjoy. An awakened paradise that now wafts abroad its fragrance. And the man is equally eager to heed her invitation. He calls her my garden. The myrrh and spices, the honeycomb and honey, the wine and milk that he describes in the preceding verses now belong to him and to him alone to enjoy. At this moment of consummation, he describes her once again as my sister, my bride, expressing that delightful relational and legal intimacy that provides a safe context for the sexual intimacy that they're going to share. And at this central and climactic moment of the poem, the author adds his own words of approval, eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love, as if he's declaring the consummation of their marriage very good. So what do these beautiful poems have to teach us about love and marriage in our sex-saturated society? Well, to begin with, they clearly hold out as the ideal remaining chaste before marriage and monogamous within marriage. And this is, of course, the church's traditional teaching. But this picture is so far from what most people in our culture believe that it is worth underlining. Sex is for marriage, and for marriage alone, and for ma marriage is for one man and one woman. That's how God created it in the first place in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and that remains how He intended it to be forever and ever. Amen. But at the same time, the way in which the song argues for this position is different from the way in which the church today often argues for chastity and monogamy. So often, I think, we find ourselves talking in the negative, focusing on all of the thou shalt nots of Scripture, prohibitions against adultery, against lust, against homosexual sex, against casual divorce, and so on. But the song paints the picture of the beauty of biblical marriage. Now, of course, both approaches may reflect biblical wisdom. The commands are not less biblical than the beautiful portraits. It's appropriate for churches to teach clearly that lust and premarital sex and adultery and homosexual sex and unbiblical divorce are wrong. But alongside that... If we are going to be true to the biblical witness, we need also to show people the glorious attractiveness of what biblical marriage was intended to be. This passage is God's eat freely of all the trees of the garden that accompanies and precedes the prohibition, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. You see, it's important for people to understand that God is not against sex. God invented sex with all of the intense physical and emotional pleasures that it brings. God deliberately designed all of the intricate organs and nerves and blood vessels that make sex so enticing. But
but he invented it not as a freestyle sport, but as a powerful bonding agent within the marital relationship, in which the legal and relational bonds that are designed to support it are there as well. It is the sister bride whose garden the man desires to enter. And these three aspects of the marital relationship, the legal, the affectionate, and the sexual, are designed to belong together. Remove any one, and you have a deformed relationship. And that's not hard to see if you think about it. For example, if you remove the affectionate component from the relationship, as many traditional cultures have done, you can have legal marriage and sex without love and intimacy. Now, worse, that's legalized rape. But even at its best, it is a travesty of what marriage and sex is designed to be, a selfish exercise of sexual conquest in which a person is being used like an object to achieve the other person's ends. Now, I think it's easy for us to see, perhaps, that that's a deformed relationship because we have a very different view of marriage in our culture. However, in our context, we certainly have plenty of sex without love and intimacy or legal marriage. Casual hooking up with somebody that a person just met that they have no intention of getting to know or getting married to. As Bob Seger put in his song, Night Moves, I used her, she used me, and neither one cared. And he doesn't seem apologetic about it. And of course, the same is true of our widespread use of pornography and romantic fantasy literature. Yeah, when you fantasize sexually about an actor or an actress or a boy or a girl you know, there's neither a legal relationship nor is there any real intimacy. It is as plastic and fake as a Twinkie. And yet many of us are pouring our sexuality into such activities in which there is no real connection with anyone other than ourselves. In some cases, it's the excitement of the sexual high itself that we crave. In others, we may be using sex to fill a void in our lives, perhaps to achieve a sense of intimacy or a sense of power or security or to numb the pain of loneliness or failure or an empty life, a lot like some people are using Twinkies for the same goal. But notice that the Bible's response to such a casual misuse of our sexuality is not merely to say, that's wrong, don't do it, you'll get pregnant, you'll go blind. (laughs) It is to say, how incredibly sad to take something as precious and as beautiful as sex and to reduce it to mere physicality. How tragic to take the beautiful garden that God has stocked with every delightful flower and spice and to allow it to be trampled down flat until our hearts become as hard and cold as concrete. In Joni Mitchell's image, we have paved paradise and put up a parking lot. What a terrible waste of something that God made so glorious. But the Bible tells us for our sexuality truly to flourish, we not only need relational intimacy, we need to be legally bonded to that person. Now, that point is a no-brainer in traditional cultures, 
but there's a much harder case to make in our culture. Why do we need marriage in order to have sex, provided we have true love? I mean, if I love her, and she loves me, and we have a great relationship, why do we need a piece of paper to validate that before we sleep together? Why does God care whether you've made a public commitment in marriage before you sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Well, the answer is that there is a crucial difference between a relationship in which you say, I love you right now, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. And a relationship in which you say, I love you and commit to you forever, in sickness or in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. And God designed sex to operate in a relationship where there is a clear and lasting, lifelong commitment to that other person. Only in that context is there enough safety to let loose the power of your sexuality, which is designed to bond you permanently to that other person. In sex, you take a lot of risks. You make yourself very vulnerable to the other person. And anything less than a lifelong commitment is like taking a piece of tape and sticking it to something and then unsticking it and re-sticking it and unsticking it again with the end result that the tape can lose its power to bond properly to anything. God intended marriage to be a permanent bond and for sex to be experienced within that safe, loving context, a context that's analogous to the safety of God's permanent, unbreakable love for us. And then thirdly, if that's true, then even a relationship in which you have both the legal and affectionate parts without the sexual part is also incomplete. Now, of course, it's true that in every marriage, there are times and seasons when sex has to be put on hold. And there may be exceptional cases where sex is not possible. But as Paul reminded the Corinthians, sexual abstinence should generally be just for a season, not a permanent abstinence. Augustine thought the ideal was celibate marriage, in which you had a spouse for spiritual companionship and nothing more. That is very far from the biblical ideal, in which the man and the woman are intended to find in their spouse's body a garden of passionate delights. Yet many marriages, even good Christian marriages, experience challenges and disappointments in this area. Purity prior to marriage is no guarantee of a great sex life within marriage, as if God owes you some recompense for your obedience. And if this is an area of struggle within your marriage, I would encourage you to reach out and get help. Don't simply assume that marriage plus affection equals great sex. Study the subject. Get books on the subject. You can buy them from Amazon. Nobody even needs to know what you're getting, right? And if particular emotional issues make this a challenging area in your marriage, get counseling and assistance, because sex was meant by God to be a delightful and fun part of the marriage relationship. Indeed, in Song of Songs 8, the woman compares love to flaming fire. Not just any fire, but a blaze as intense as the flames of the Almighty, the Lord Himself. 
What this shows us is that married love is not merely comfortable companionship. If it were, you could be married to a lot of people at the same time, just as you can have a lot of friends. Married love is much more than just friendship. It is a mutual, exclusive, passionate commitment. Friendship that is on fire. And it is this aspect of fiery longing in marriage that the Song of Songs brings out so powerfully. The song describes the desire the man and the woman have to possess a unique, lastingly committed soulmate who will not only be their friend, but their lover. Somebody who is madly and passionately devoted to them and to them alone. That's why proposing marriage to someone is not simply a matter of sitting down and calmly explaining the various strengths that you each bring to the table and proposing a corporate merger. Marriage is intended to be a flaming, red-hot relationship. And this is, I think, a countercultural expectation. Our culture desires burning passion, certainly, but it has largely disconnected marriage from that expectation. Our society's image of marriage is built around the model of Tavye and Goldie in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. In that movie, you may remember, reflecting on 25 years of marriage, Tevye asks his wife Goldie, do you love me? And in response, she looks at him and she says, I've washed your clothes, I've cooked your meals, I've cleaned your house, I've shared your bed, I've given you children, I've milked your cow. After 25 years, why do we need to talk about love now? And when, she, when he presses the point, yeah, but do you love me? She finally concedes, oh, I suppose I do. And that is most people's image of married love. That a good marriage is not so much a matter of shared passion as shared chores. But the Bible joins these two things together and calls us to a marriage that is not merely friendship, but friendship on fire. Not simply meant to say, oh, I suppose I love you. But I love you with a burning love that is as strong as death and as jealous as the grave. We were made for this kind of friendship on fire. Now, what that means is if you are still single, the Scripture sets a high bar for what you should look for in a spouse. Don't settle for marriage to somebody whose best quality is simply that they're willing and available. They deserve better than that, and so do you. Only rich, profound love, only friendship on fire can endure the trials of life in a fallen world. You know, marriage is not a walk in the park. It is not a pleasant sail on a summer's afternoon. If you love someone enough to marry them, you will inevitably pass with them through the turmoil of sickness, conflict, childbirth, or the painful inability to have children. Disappointments, brokenness, tears, sorrow, and ultimately death itself. Marriage is indeed, as those old vows said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health. And nothing less than friendship on fire will carry you through the challenges of caring for a spouse when they're unable to care for themselves. 
of forgiving a spouse when they sin against you in deep and profoundly painful ways, of enduring together through the bad times as well as the good. Now, of course, as Bruce Lee pointed out, the intensity of that fire is going to vary over the course of a lifetime. At times, it will be a raging blaze, while at others, it will settle back into glowing embers. And sometimes you may need to dig through the ashes to find a live coal. I was talking to somebody at the break earlier who was talking about the difficulty of connecting with with a husband when you have four small kids at home. Trust me, I remember those days. You know, it's 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 you know, when once you finally got all the kids to bed, you just collapse together and you know, high five in the doorway as you go out in the mornings. And... <laughs> but the song calls us to search for more, to set aside time. Yeah, you can't do it all the time, but to to make moments where we actually, instead of staring together at the kids, we're staring towards one, one another. We're looking into one another's eyes. Feelings certainly come and go, but if love is going to endure all things, then we need a love that many waters cannot extinguish and that floods cannot drown. Now, at this point... I think it's probable that many of us feel considerable guilt and shame because we haven't lived up to the calling of this kind of love. It may be that we have not protected our sexual purity. Our garden has not been locked. Our spring was not sealed. Nor have our marriages perhaps been friendships on fire. We, we have settled down into comfortable uh, uh, side-by-sideness. Perhaps we have pursued sexual satisfaction repeatedly outside the context of legal and affectionate relationships. For some, that struggle is with the addictive use of pornography. For others, perhaps that struggle is with same-sex attraction. Some may not technically have had sex, perhaps, but have done anything and everything else. And that is hardly surprising given the combination of our own desperately fallen natures the sex-saturated society in which we live, and the skill of the evil one in matching temptation to our own personal temperaments. One thing you should never say to your counselees or to your children is, how could you? How can we not? It's only the work of the Spirit that protects us from any and every sin. Given our natures, given Satan's power, given the world that is around us, So yes, we have a lot to feel guilty about. Some perhaps were exposed to pornography and abused at a young age by those they trusted. Others have no such excuse, but still know from bitter experience the intense weakness of our own souls. We did not choose the desires with which we wrestle. And maybe you think you're the only one who wrestles with these things because you've never shared your struggle with anyone else. Well, if so, welcome into the light of God's truth. You are not alone. You are surrounded by many fellow strugglers. You are part of a band of sexually broken brothers and sisters who are here today who are eager to reach out and help you. But there may be still others who are perhaps feeling quite proud of their personal purity. If so, you must have forgotten what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about lust. Again, you may not have engaged in sex physically, but you've probably imagined yourself in steamy romantic or sexual relationships in your mind. 
Or perhaps you're completely disinterested in sex, which is not necessarily a sign of great holiness. It may simply reflect a different kind of brokenness. There is not one person here today who can measure up to this glorious picture of this bride and groom on their wedding day. Not one. Not even those of us who are married. Scripture calls you to treat your spouse like a seal. That means that he or she is to be your most treasured possession, precious to you like a pearl of great price, the way that Gollum treats the ring, only not quite such a creepy way, my precious. A seal also suggests that your spouse is meant to leave a lasting imprint on your heart, touching the deepest core of your being. Do you treat and view your spouse in that way? Do you nurture them, cherish them, protect them with appropriate jealousy, regarding their highest welfare as your single-minded concern and laying down your life for them daily? You know, I think sometimes it's easy for us men to imagine giving our lives for our wives in some kind of dramatic gesture, you know, shielding their body from terrorist bullets or something. But so much more often, God asks us to give our lives for our wives daily in much more mundane ways, taking care of the children so she can go to a Bible study, washing the dishes, listening patiently to her talk about the troubles of her girlfriends, and so on and so on. Love graciously endures and shares the little things, as well as giving itself in grand gestures. And so often, we have not loved our spouses in this way. This is why we so desperately need the deeper relationship towards which human marriage points, the relationship between Christ and His church. So the goal of the Song of Songs is not simply to teach you how you can have a great marriage relationship. That might be the subject of a wonderful song, but it could hardly be the theme of the greatest of all songs, the Song of Songs. Rather, what the song does is it gives us a glimpse into the heart of the God who Himself loves you so passionately. For that reason, all three elements of a great human marriage point to Christ's relationship with us in their own way. To begin with, there's the legal aspect. When Jesus Christ calls you to Himself, He does not just say, I love you for now, and let's see how this works out as, you go, as we go along. If you are holy and devout enough over the next 50 years or so, maybe I'll take you to heaven when you die. No. When God calls someone to Himself, He legally, covenantally bonds Himself to you permanently and unbreakably. Those whom God chose before the foundation of the world, He calls into a relationship with Himself. Those He calls, He also justifies. Those He justifies, He also sanctifies. And those He sanctifies, He will take to be with Him forever, as Romans 8 reminds us. The security of your salvation does not rest on the strength of your vow to follow Jesus. It rests on His initial irrevocable choice of you to be His sheep. And who can snatch the sheep out of the hand of the good shepherds? Those whom the Father has given to the Son, no one can snatch from His hands. 
when you truly put your faith in Christ, it is a legal bond, for better or for worse, that not even death can dissolve. But Jesus' relationship with you is not merely legal, it is also deeply affectionate. God is not just stuck with you because He made an unwise commitment, and now, oh well, He just has to carry it through. He actually loves you. He really does. Hard though that can be for us to grasp sometimes. He knows you inside and out with all of your quirks, all of your weaknesses, all of your habitual sins, all of your heart idolatries, yet He still loves you personally. God reveals His heart to you on the pages of Scripture and desires that you would come to know and love Him in the same way that He already knows and loves you. But God is not merely mildly fond of you in the way that you might be fond of your little brother. What is it that sex is intended by God to add to marriage beyond mere companionship and friendship? Well, we've already said it. It's fire. Sex is all about deep passion and unique commitments. That is why we crave sex so much, because it persuades us that we matter intensely to someone. Even in its counterfeit forms, that is the lie that it sells us. A lie that is all the more powerful because it is so close to the truth. Love is a flaming fire. And the burning love that we see in our sexuality is a picture of the intensity of the love that God has for you. Nothing less than such an intense burning love could ever explain the cross. A mild fondness for humanity would not have been enough to propel an infinite, glorious God of all creation to humble himself to the point of taking on flesh and becoming a mere mortal. Why would the eternal one enter time and take on all of the limitations of our tiny form? Burning love. Why would the Holy One enter a sinful world and befriend deeply broken sinners? Burning love. Because of that yearning for us, Jesus Christ bore the frustrations of life in this fallen world where He was constantly surrounded by people who failed Him and let Him down and ultimately, of course, who betrayed Him. God's own people, who He had been faithfully wooing throughout the Old Testament, rejected Him. They chose to have a terrorist released to them instead of God's Messiah. And then they conspired with the Romans to nail Jesus to the cross, where He would endure hours of indescribable physical pain and agony. But the worst pain was the spiritual pain of bearing sin, mountains of sin, mountains of our sin, of your sin, of my sin, including all of the sexual sin we have thought or committed. The Jews and the Romans weren't the only ones to betray Jesus. We betrayed Him too. And we continue to betray Him day after day after day. 
Our mountains of sin were laid on his shoulders so that he experienced the burning wrath of the Father that scorched his very soul. And what did it cost the Father to bruise the Son like that? The Father did not uncaringly pour out his wrath on Jesus. Every wound that the Son received must have caused the Father likewise to flinch. Every blow that Jesus received was measured out to him by the Father with whom he had shared unbroken fellowship and intimacy since the universe began. What human father could endure the pain of seeing a beloved child suffer like that? What human husband would bear such pain and shame for the sake of his bride? What earthly lover would endure such ignominy for the beloved that had shown themselves to be so unworthy and so unfaithful? There is not one. There is only one father, one husband, one lover like that. The God who created us for himself and who will not let us go. Who delights to gaze upon us with the same intensity that he delights to gaze upon his own son. Because he sees us now united to Christ and clothed in his righteousness. Jesus Christ, who loved his bride and gave himself for us so that he could present us to himself on our wedding day, pure and spotless, clothed in a righteousness that we did not earn without spot or blemish. Jesus did not marry us because we were beautiful. He married us in order to make us beautiful by the power of his transforming love. This is the God who calls you now to mirror that same intense, burning, committed love in your relationships. Who calls you to chastity as long as you're unmarried. Chastity in your mind as well as in your actions. Who calls you to sexual faithfulness within marriage. Not just abstaining from sex in all of its wrong forms, but properly delighting in sex as the gift it was intended to be. A wonderful gift that you can give your spouse and that they can give to you. Who calls you to show the watching world around us the kind of permanent, unbreakable, legal bond that is at the very same time filled with tender affection and great passion. Marriages that truly are friendship on fire. But Jesus is not just an example of friendship on fire. If Jesus had simply come into this world to model true friendship, to show us what that kind of love looked like, he, we would simply be condemned all the more because of our failure to be that kind of friends. His perfection in being patient, in being kind, in keeping no record of wrongs, and so on, with people who were cold and unresponsive, would simply have highlighted all the more our failure to love like that. Jesus didn't just live the perfect life of love to give us an example to follow. He lived it for us in our place. 
And then in order to pay the penalty for our sins, to restore our broken friendship with God, he went to the cross to atone for our sins and our failures, including our failure truly to love God and one another, whether within our marriages and families or more broadly. At the cross, love deliberately entered into the power of death. Love made the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate test of its strength against the grave. And for three days, as Christ was in the tomb, the heavens, as it were, held their breath and watched and waited. But then Christ, the very embodiment of God's love, emerged triumphantly from the grave and conquered death forever. He came up from the wilderness of the tomb with his chosen bride, the church, leaning radiantly on his arm. And because Christ is indeed risen, Paul can say, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This incredible, passionate love story is what every page of the Bible is about. God's burning friendship on fire that pursues you right where you are, with all of your lostness and brokenness and coldness, with all of your failures to love Him and to love others, all of your sins both outside and inside of marriage. The Lord is jealously calling you to an exclusive relationship with Him, whether it is for the first time or returning from the far country yet again, God doesn't merely tolerate your presence. He's not just mildly fond of you. He loves you with an incredible, passionate love. And through His amazing friendship on fire that took Him to engage the agony of the cross and a shameful death for you, Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to win you as His bride to restore you to deep and lasting fellowship with your Father God. It may be true that human love could only be as strong as death, but God's love is greater still. God's love is stronger than Sheol. God's love for us in Christ has triumphed over the grave once and for all, and so in Him, we too can one day triumph over the grave through the solid hope that He gives of the resurrection of the dead. In heaven, spouses and friends and families will be reunited, but with all of their former sins and brokenness gone, replaced with a purity of love that for now we can only dream about. In Christ, we have a relationship with God and with one another that extends beyond this life into eternity and onwards. A friendship on fire that we can never lose because it depends on His perfect, jealous love that will not let us go. Our love comes and goes, but His love never fails. Our names are inscribed in the wounds on the palms of His hands. They're impressed on His heart like a seal so that He can no more forget us than a mother can forget her nursing child. At the cross... And especially at the resurrection, God's fiery love triumphed forever over the grave and won the victory for His people. And in that truth, the truth of God's victory in Christ over sin, over death, over hell, 
we can find the faith to step out once again in trying to show friendship on fire to one another, even after we've failed so many times before, as well as faith in God's unbreakable love for us in Christ. There at the cross, we also find hope, hope of an eternal future together with Christ in which even the flooding waters of death cannot separate us. And there at the cross, we find something that is even greater than faith and hope. We find the greatest of these, love, God's amazing, fiery love to us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed afresh at your love for us. We certainly don't deserve it. We were born sinners, and we have continued to be sinners. Uh, Some of us have been Christians for many years, and yet are continually amazed at all of the ways in which we find to fail you and fall short, and to sin against those around us, our spouses, our families. Some here perhaps have sinned in especially great ways against spouse and family. Lord, we thank you that in Christ there is forgiveness for all of our sins, and there is a perfect righteousness that he has uh, accomplished for us that can now clothe us in place of our own filthy rags. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us with that truth that you would strengthen us by your Spirit to love our spouses and our families better, uh, to love our churches better, uh, and uh, to love you better. And we pray that you would do all of this by the work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.